Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Good morning, everyone. Wow, it is hot up here. I'm going to scoot back, try to get a little bit of shade. I love how you guys have to sit like 90 feet away from the umbrella to get the shade from the umbrella, the winter equinox. All right, good morning, everyone. Let's take out our Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Peter. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, and today we're in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to look at two verses today, verse 8 and 9. <clears throat> Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving weekend at church because it's always a little bit of a homecoming. You get to see people who are back and visiting their families that you've known in years past, and it's always a blast. It's been one of those days today, a little homecoming time. All right, our text today is uh, verse 8 and 9. If you guys would look at it in your Bibles, let's read it, and then I'll pray. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right, so happy Thanksgiving. Let's talk about the devil today. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for the honesty of your word, and I think this warning is really important for us, and uh, so thank you for giving it to us in your word, and I pray that you'd bless us as your people to be alert and to resist the tactics of the enemy, to stand firm in our faith, and to know our connection with our brotherhood throughout the world. We pray for these things, Lord, and we specifically, maybe every one of you guys could just think of somebody in your mind that you know right now as I'm praying. We want to pray, Lord, for those that we know that are, their lives are being ripped apart by the enemy, and we just quietly bring them before you today. Jesus, we ask for you to win vic- victoriously in their lives. Bind the wicked one, we pray. So speak to us now from your word. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, before he was arrested there, before he was then drugged to the house of the high priest for an illegal evening trial, before he was then delivered by the Jewish religious leaders to Pontius Pilate and eventually examined and then crucified, before any of that, the night before those events occurred, Jesus looked at Peter, who wrote the book of 1 Peter, and listened to the words that Jesus said to Peter. This is from Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus told Peter that night, he said, Satan demanded to have you, Peter, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Those words from Jesus are ominous, but they also colored the whole night for Peter. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and he did not 
watch and pray. He did not do the things that he says to do in this passage. And because of that, when he was asked three times if he knew Jesus, he denied ever even knowing Jesus. He was embarrassed of his association with Christ. But we know the story. Jesus had prayed for him so Peter would not be fully sifted like wheat. And so he was restored by Jesus after Christ rose from the grave. And Peter now looking back on perhaps even that episode in his own life now is writing a letter to a group of Christians that are on the edge of being marginalized, on the edge of being persecuted. And he wants to tell them specific things. And in the close of his letter, what he wants them to understand is that they now were the target of Satan, that he wanted to sift them like wheat, that he was walking about, prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking them to devour them. And there were certain things they needed to do to prepare themselves, to ready themselves, to endure the violent storms that Satan would bring. And Peter's words were not only for that generation, amen, they're for us as well today. Every generation of the church has needed this exhortation from Peter. And I think there are three things that we really need to do as a result of this passage. Number one, we have to realize the gravity of the situation that we're in. So we're gonna take some time today letting that sink in, thinking about who the devil is, what the Bible says about him biblically and what he's doing on earth today and attempting to do even in the lives of God's people. Secondly, we're also going to learn that we must respond in a certain way. Peter will give us four ways to respond to the enemy. And then lastly, I want us to reflect on Jesus to think about how Jesus did all the things that Peter will tell us to do. All right, so the first thing that I want us to think about is to realize, number one, realize the gravity of the situation. Okay, the Bible teaches Peter is acting as if Jesus spoke as if the devil is a real person. And I say that because, of course, we're moderns. We live in the age that we live in. And many people have a difficult time believing or confessing in a unseen reality of darkness, have a difficult time believing in the reality of Satan. By the way, I think this is one of Satan's vilest and most effective strategies to convince humanity that he does not exist, that he is not working to manipulate the mindset, the philosophies, the religions of this world is one of the most effective strategies that he's ever employed. And I don't think that the modern mind, however intelligent we are, however educated we are, I don't think that we're equipped to decide whether Satan exists or not for two reasons. One is a theological reason. The Bible teaches that before we know Jesus, our minds are darkened and we are under sin. And Romans 1 says that we are children of wrath. That's not a politically correct way to describe our pre-Christian experience, but it's the reality that the Bible declares. And in that place, darkened and under sin and children of wrath, we do not have or possess the faculties to make a decision on whether Satan exists or not. 
Secondly, there's a cultural reason. We're, we live in a time where we're deluded into thinking that if we cannot study something and observe it through the sciences, that it must not be real. Now, I don't think that Jesus and the sciences contradict each other at all, but I appreciate Jesus more than the sciences. And Jesus declared over and over again the reality and the presence of Satan. We started off this teaching today with Jesus's words to Peter that Satan has wanted to sift him like wheat. Jesus knew the wicked one was at work in Peter's life. He spoke of the devil. He spoke of his work here on earth. In fact, in Jesus's public ministry, it began when he was baptized in the Jordan River. The spirit came upon him and then drove him into the wilderness for a period of 40 days of temptation at the hands of the wicked one. Jesus, in a sense, was more familiar with the devil than any one of us here. And I think another reason why Jesus was familiar with the devil or understands the devil is because in a sense, Jesus created the devil. And what I mean by that is that Jesus is the creator of all things. Things were created by the word of his power. And when you look at the Bible, it's really not a story about the devil. It's not a story about Satan, but as you patch together scripture with scripture, you can come to a determination on the timeline of Satan's existence. It appears that he began a created being in God's throne room as an angel who was leading other angels in the worship of God. That's the first place that you see him in the timeline of scripture. The next place that you see him is in Genesis chapter three as a serpent who is tempting Eve. So something occurred between his angelic presence and his serpent-like presence. And what it appears occurred from, again, patching scripture together with scripture is that Satan at some point in his perfection and holiness and purity as a worshiper of God had a moment where pride filled his heart and he led an angelic rebellion against God. These angels became fallen beings, exalted with self-worship, who became the demonic powers of darkness in invisible operation throughout the world today, including in the ministry of Jesus. Now these demons, this fallen angelic realm is destined for the fires of hell. In fact, the Bible teaches that hell was created for the devil and his fallen angels but they still wreak havoc on the earth today. One day when Jesus returns, Satan and his forces will be bound and ultimately judged, but right now he roams the earth like a wounded animal, lashing out violently until the day of his total demise. And the Bible is full of references to Satan. Here in 1 Peter, he's called the devil. That's a Greek translation of the word for slanderer because that's what he does. He loves to lie to us primarily about God, just like he lied to Eve about who God is. God isn't good like he says he is. That's what he said to Eve. He loves to lie to us about others and he loves to lie to us about ourselves. He's a slanderer. Uh, but beyond that, the Bible gives him other titles as well. He's called the evil one in scripture. 
He's called the great dragon in scripture because he's violent and chaos creating. He's called the serpent of old because he was the original deceiver who's still trying to deceive you. He's called Abaddon, which means destruction. He's called Apollyon, which means destroyer. He's called Belial, which means worthless. He's called the God of this world because he controls the philosophies of this world. He's called the ruler of this world because he's the manipulator and leader of this world system. He's called the prince of the power of the air because he controls the minds of the unbelieving world. He's called in the Bible, the tempter, a murderer, a liar, and the accuser. He's even called in the Bible, the Lord of the flies. And I have no idea why, but it seems like an appropriate title for this wicked being. And Jesus referred to him 25 times in his teaching and ministry. And he's not the only New Testament witness to Satan's reality. Every single New Testament writer makes mention of the devil. 19 of the 27 books of the New Testament talk about this figure. And what Peter wants us to know about the devil is very clear. Look at verse eight again with me. He said, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There are other passages in the Bible that compare Satan to other things. Like in 2 Corinthians, Paul said that the devil is an angel of light. That means that he presents philosophies and religions and ideologies that sound so good and attractive at first, but when you follow them to their end, you discover that they're demonic in origin. But he presents himself in that way. Uh, the Bible says in Psalm 91 that he presents himself like a fowler trying to entrap, in other words. But here, Peter says or compares him to a roaring lion. Now, lions are amazing, aren't they? They're just powerful, intimidating figures. I mean, all of us have an image of a lion in our minds, you know, some way. You know, maybe for you, it's like from the Lion King cartoon or the, you know, recent remake that Disney made. Maybe that's how you have your image of lions. For, for me, my understanding of lions, maybe you guys can relate. It all started with the after-school Mutual of Omaha nature programs. And I would just watch these lions, you know, chasing down zebra or whatever, just doing their thing. I just loved watching the power of these animals. Years ago, I, and I told you guys this story before, but years ago I was running up in Jack's Peak, just nearby. You could see the peak from here. And as I was running, I had my headphones in and I came around a corner near the top and within 20 feet, there was a huge mountain lion that was crossing the path, acting like it didn't see me. It was clearly not intimidated by my presence at all. It had no worries whatsoever. And immediately I was fearful. I mean, a shot of adrenaline came into my body. I backed up and kind of hid behind a tree. I watched to see it crest the hill. And once it was out of sight and I knew that it was gone, I set a new world record running back to my house. I mean, I was just out of there as quickly as I could. Coming face to face with that kind of power does something to you. But I want you to think about the way that the Christians Peter wrote to might have thought about a lion. They hadn't watched nature shows, but their fears might have been more severe than ours. 
Some of them might have seen or heard of human blood dripping from the mouths of starved lions in the goriness of the Roman amphitheater. They might have felt the very real threat of death at the mouth of lions for being Christians, something which at least inevitably, eventually occurred for many of these believers. Now, a roaring lion, and that's what Peter says Satan is like, a roaring lion is declaring his territory. He's, he's announcing to rivals that they should steer clear of his domain. And Satan is doing all he can to claim as much territory for himself. He's doing everything he can to get you to be afraid during this season of life. Because when Satan can make you afraid, he can make you retreat. And often you're retreating right into one of his traps. So the enemy is attempting to claim you and is attempting to intimidate you. And when he does this, Peter said that his ultimate goal, verse eight, is to devour you. That's the word that he uses. It's a word that means to drink down, like the emptying of a bottle. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to fully eliminate God's people. And here, Peter calls Satan something very specific. Notice it in verse eight. He says, Satan is our adversary. Now, I love this because all throughout the book of 1 Peter, Peter's hinted at our adversary. These are people he's writing to who are feeling threatened. They were feeling marginalized. They were feeling like they were on the beginning wave of persecution. And Peter referred to their opponents. He talked about those who were disobedient. He talked about the Gentile world. He talked about the foolish. He talked about harsh masters and harsh and unbelieving husbands. He talked about those who revile our good behavior. He talked about blasphemers. But here what Peter does is he lifts the curtain and he says none of those people are our actual adversary. They might be an instrument, but there's a real adversary behind them, the devil himself, behind human forces and human philosophies that are hostile to the gospel lies Satan himself. He is our true adversary. This is all important because someone might be an enemy that is hostile to the gospel like Saul was before he was converted and became Paul the apostle. He was a man who persecuted the church, but he was still a target for God's affections. He was still a man created in the image of God that God wanted to reach. He wasn't the true adversary of the church. The true adversary lay behind him. And this is important for us to understand in the times that we're in. Now, here's a question. Why does Satan hate and attack God's people? Why are we in what Peter's telling us, this spiritual battle? Okay, the answer is really simple. The devil, remember earlier in the book of uh, 1 Peter, you guys can nod your heads like you totally remember this, but earlier in the book of 1 Peter, Peter said, basically, my goal is that as many people as possible would know Jesus. That's what he wanted, as many people as possible to know Jesus. You guys down with that? Nod your head like, yeah, that's what I want that. I want as many people as possible to know Jesus. Satan's goal is just the exact opposite. He wants as many people as possible to be destroyed with him on the day of judgment. He's been cast from God's presence and he wants as many people as possible to be haters of God like he is, 
to be outside of God's presence. So if that's the case, then why does he attack us? If you're a Christian today, you've been transferred from darkness into light. You're in God's kingdom. You're preserved by the blood of the cross. There's no risk. There's no danger. You're eternally secure in him if you're a true believer in his gospel message. So why would he attack us? Well, it's very simple. Satan knows that the church is God's strategic instrument for telling and showing the world about God the truth, and his gospel. If Satan can render God's people fruitless, then he can keep many other people locked away in darkness, separated from God. So he does everything he can to keep the church from the ministry of reconciliation that God has called us to. And he works in some insidious ways. One of his main weapons is that of discouragement. And I've found that the enemy, if he can discourage us, and we'll talk about this in a moment, then we will do things that we never thought we would do. The enemy will also divide us. He loves to get us divided over less consequential skirmishes and divisions. With godly unity, we can get a lot done, but with ungodly disunity, we lose our effectiveness. And then he also loves to distract us. He loves to fill up your life, in other words, with so many things that even if they're good things, they're distractions from becoming a disciple or making disciples. And pretty soon, our lives have no time for either. We can't personally grow, and we can't help others grow. So what are we to do? That's kind of me talking about the reality of the situation. Hopefully, you guys are a little freaked out by now, you know, like, oh, man, it sounds really bad. So how should we respond to this reality. That's the second thing I wanna share with you. And Peter shows us four avenues for response. Look at the first one. It's right there at the very beginning, the first couple of words of the verses. Verse eight, he said, we should be sober-minded and watchful. I'm gonna call this spiritual watchfulness. We need to have spiritual watchfulness. What this means, when you put these words together, sober-minded and watchful, is that we have to diligently maintain a healthy mental state when we're marginalized or exiled for the gospel. We can't freak out, we have to keep a clear-headed perspective. I've been saying all throughout 1 Peter, we can't respond with unrighteous anger, we can't respond by retreating, we can't respond with ungodly assimilation, I'll just become like the world. We can't do any of those things. We have to respond with this alert perspective, this spiritual watchfulness. You know, the times that I have seen a mountain lion out, and it's always been at Jack's Peak, I've seen them three times, and every time I've seen them, I've had headphones in, where I've been listening to music, or a book, or a podcast, and every single time I see them, sometimes I've seen them, you know, a hundred yards away, and their big tail wafting around in the air, and they're running by, or one sitting on the trail, or whatever. When I see them from far away, One of the first things I do is I reach for my headphones, turn off the music, turn off the podcast, turn off the audiobook, and take off the headphones. And why am I doing that? Because I want all of my senses. And I want to hear everything that I might need to hear. I don't know, I don't know if it will really help me or not, but that's what I instinctively do. I need all of my senses in this moment. And we, in similar manner, must be on high alert with all of our senses attuned to what he's trying to do. 
So if he's trying to discourage you, well, it might be a way for you to have this spiritual wakefulness. Well, one thing that you can do is you can live near sources of encouragement. I mean, if you know that he's trying to discourage you, then you need to live near the supply of God's word, spiritually gifted Christians who are able to edify and encourage and comfort. You need to live near sources of encouragement. If you live continually near sources of discouragement, then guess what will follow? If he's trying to divide us, then I think we better get the gospel front and center so that we don't divide over inconsequential matters. And if he's trying to distract us, and he certainly is, then we better fill up our calendars and we better spend our money on the things that are oriented towards the kingdom or else we'll fall prey to his tactics. We have to be sober-minded and watchful. But look at the second thing Peter said we should do in response. He said in verse nine, I wouldn't even say this if it wasn't in the Bible, he said we should resist him, resistance. A person who resists the devil does not retreat. If anything, a person who resists, they advance against the devil. Um, last weekend, I was gone. You guys probably noticed that. Pastor Matt was teaching great word that he shared. Love when he gets to share the word. But I was up in uh, central Washington uh, doing a men's retreat for a collection of churches on Friday and Saturday, and then on Sunday speaking at the host church at their Sunday services. And uh, I loved it. I had a great time. I, I like going to different places and kind of ministering to the pastors that are in those churches, helping them out, coaching them up a little bit if I can, um, but also just seeing what life is like in other places. And there was just great people in central Washington. There was a, there was a, lot, of, a lot of flannel, a lot of camouflage, uh, and a, a lot of beards. I mean, I loved it, just a lot of beards. One woman at the church on Sunday, she's like, oh, you were the speaker at the men's retreat? You might have met my husband, he has a beard. And I was like, you really did not narrow it down at all. There was one clean-shaven 11-year-old boy, but everybody else, beards. And a lot of guns, too, like open carry, come into the sanctuary, got it on my holster and my hip, guns. I was like, man, we need to step it up at our church. What's going on? This is awesome. And on the opening night of the retreat, the guy who's kind of the host of the retreat center, he got up there and he gave us all the ground rules. You know, here's where the bathrooms are and what time food's going to be and all that kind of stuff. But then he said, hey, you know, throughout the retreat center over the last couple of months, every four or five days, there's been a mountain lion that's kind of come through the camp. And so, you know, just be alert and ready and all of that. They call them cougars up there. And there's a huge cougar population. They even give out hunting licenses so that during certain times of the year, you can go hunt a mountain lion. Well, Saturday rolled around and it was free time. It's like a universal thing. It's in the Bible. In the afternoon, you have a free time at the conference. And so we have in this little free time and I see this guy, he's got camouflage on and he's got a rifle on his shoulder. And I'm like, hey man, you know, what are you doing for free time? And he said, I am going to go hunt that mountain lion. <laughs> and I just couldn't help but think of all the guys at our men's retreats just playing cornhole, you know? <laughs> like, That's what we do, man, cornhole. But I don't know how you feel about hunting wildlife. I'm not trying to make you feel a certain way about it, but you gotta admit, this guy, he was going on the offensive. <laughs> you know, he wasn't just gonna sit back. He was going to go on the attack. And Peter gives the same idea. He says we must resist 
this roaring lion. This is not just a idea Peter had either. James and Paul, other apostles, they had this idea as well. James said in James 4 verse 7, listen to this. He said, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a promise attached to an activity. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then Paul got all Pauline over this. He got in depth about it. He said in Ephesians 6 that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting human beings. He said, instead, what we're fighting is against cosmic powers of this present darkness. That's intense. He said that we have to take up our spiritual armor and our spiritual weapons and take our stand against this unseen enemy with its fiery darts. So how do we do this? How do we resist in this way? Well, let me give you some practical ways that you might resist. Think of one when discouragement comes into your life. And, what, and by discouragement, what I mean is maybe you've had a time in your life where you're discouraged with how slowly you've gotten victory over something in your life. You know, like a temptation that you're dealing with. And by the way, temptation is no big deal. Everybody's tempted. That's not the sin. The sin is then giving into the temptation. So perhaps for you, you've been tempted, but you keep entering into the temptation and you're just discouraged by that. You feel like, Satan's got your number. You're just not going to win this one. You're not going to gain victory. My encouragement to you in those moments is maybe a, maybe a pathway of resistance would be in those moments when you're feeling that temptation or you're feeling the shame and embarrassment that comes from that failure. Why don't you try praying for 10 people that you know or that you might know who struggle with that very same temptation? Just begin interceding for them to God. Satan has his fiery darts, but he's nothing in comparison to God himself, God's power, God's strength. I think as you resist the devil, you'll find him fleeing from your life. Or when you're tempted to divide from other believers. You know, when another Christian does something that's inappropriate, says something that's inappropriate, believes something that isn't right, does something that's you know, annoying or whatever. I've heard this can happen you know, from time to time. Uh, if that happens in your life and you're tempted to di divide, you wanna withdraw, instead push in and start finding Christians to encourage or to edify or to comfort or to exhort. Or when you're distracted, you're overrun with the cares of this life Take a little moment and genuinely from your heart, and I think you can ignite this, worship God. Whether it's in song or just in prayer, be a worshiper of God. Satan hates the worship of God. He used to be a worship leader of God, and he loves to exalt himself now. He was enamored with his own beauty. And so the worship of God is a way, in a sense, to put this being in his place. But by the victory of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, resist. But notice also, Peter tells us that we should do something else besides just resist. He says in verse 9, he says, stand firm in the faith. This could go one of two ways. This might mean stand firm in the faith, like all the cardinal doctrines of Christianity, the gospel, stand firm in it. Like, don't let go of the gospel. Satan's pressuring you to, you know, change your orthodoxy into something else but resist him. Or it could mean trust God. 
you know, what did Satan do in the Garden of Eden? He told Eve in so many words, he said, you know, God's not really that good. God's holding out on you. He's not the beautiful, incredible, good being that he's presented himself to be. And when he lies to us in the same way, we should trust God. We should say, no, I don't believe that. I believe that God is good. But either way, we need both of these things today, don't we? You know, we need to be people who hold on to the faith. We should be conscious and saying things like, hey man, if it comes down to social acceptance or the gospel, I choose the gospel 100 out of 100 times, amen? So we have to have that philosophy, but we also need to walk by faith. We need to trust the Lord. Trust that he is good, even as Satan attempts to lie to us about him. And then one last thing that we're supposed to do, look at the end of verse nine. He said, we should have this knowledge of a special connection. He said it this way. He said, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. How is this helpful? Well, Peter wants us to see ourselves not as an isolated group of people, marginalized and a minority He doesn't want them to think of themselves as a group of scattered Christians. Instead, he wanted them and he wanted us to see ourselves as part of a broader family of God, people that love Jesus all over the world, internationally, but also historically. And that all of us have always suffered at least a little bit for the gospel. Throughout the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered for Jesus, and we're all connected. That's why Peter uses the word brotherhood to describe us. It's like we're going to war together. There's a French theologian and pastor who highlighted some advantages that are gained from knowing that the church throughout the world is enduring similar, similar suffering. One advantage is this. It's the encouragement that, okay, I'm not alone. We're not alone. You know, I've got a few friends that are just like those radical missionary kind of people that they just do things that just kind of embarrass you with what you're doing with your life, going into places that are off limits to Christians and Christianity. And they go and they meet with these believers, they encourage believers that are basically underground for their faith. And to hear those stories, it's encouraging. Not encouraging in the sense that, oh, I'm so glad that they're being marginalized or persecuted, but it's encouraging just to know like, okay, wow, I, my deal doesn't even begin to compare with what they're enduring and they're experiencing and somehow that brings encouragement into my life. I think it's also helpful, he says, because you're reminded that the bond that unites you to this brotherhood, it's the blood of Jesus. You see, people have suffered all over the world for lots of different reasons. That's not what binds us together is the suffering, but it's the blood of Jesus. And to know that you have the blood, that's evidence. So suffering is evidence that you belong to him. And then when you see it this way and you know that it's everywhere and at all times, you're reminded that this kind of suffering for Christ is a normal part of the Christian life. It's just normal to suffer a little bit for the faith. In fact, I think you could say that it's abnormal not to. It's abnormal to be in the majority Most Christians throughout history have had to figure out how to do the Christian life in societies that were suspicious of them and their beliefs. 
And then the sufferings of the church also can encourage us because we know that they will end. You see them, but you know that's not the forever destiny that God has for us. All right, let me wrap up today with just one last thing. You know, I've tried to tell you today that, and, and share with you the reality of the situation. The devil is real, he's working. He's trying to disrupt us, disrupt the church. I've tried to tell you that we need to do certain things in response. We have to have a clear mind. We have to resist him. We have to be firm in the faith and be conscious of the reality that this happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world and has always happened. But the last thing I want to share with you, Peter doesn't even really say, but I think it's appropriate for us in reflection. We need to reflect on Jesus. You see, Jesus did every single one of the things that Peter just told us to do. I mean, think about it. Peter said that we should be sober and watchful, right? Jesus, while he was on earth, he was sober and watchful. It seems that he spent every one of his mornings, or many of his mornings at least, getting up, going out into the wilderness, being alone with his Father in heaven, praying about the events of that day. He was alert to the oppressive and demonic forces and presence around him. He knew what the devil was doing to people, and he began actually rescuing people from the devil's influence. Jesus could not be swayed off of his mission when friends and foes alike tried to discourage him from what he was doing. He would not turn. He was determined. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to suffer the agonies that awaited him there. And before Jesus went to the cross, he endured a night of watching and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was sober and watchful. And Jesus, just like Peter said, secondly, he said, you gotta resist the devil. Jesus resisted the devil. He resisted the enemy. After that baptism, when the Spirit came upon him and the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and nights directly by the devil himself. Sometimes people will come to me and say, I don't think Jesus really understands my temptation. He never sinned, so how could he understand the pull, the weight of sin? And I think of it like this. If you were to put temptation on a scale from one to 100, we often give in when it hits one, two, three, or four. But Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, was tempted directly by the devil and got all the way to level 100, yet did not yield. He understands temptation. He understands the devil better than all of us combined can understand him. And he resisted the enemy. He went to the cross. He went on the offensive and crushed the serpent under his feet. And Jesus, just like Peter told us to do, he trusted the Father, didn't he? You know, he always believed that the Father's will was best. Whatever the Father told him to do, he would do that. It even came down to the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That is the ultimate statement of trust in the Father. It's as if he's saying, I really don't prefer to go through the physical, psychological, emotional pain and suffering that I'm about to endure, but Father, I do not know best, you know best. And whatever you want, crave, desire, long for, see in my life, I wanna pass through that. That's trust in the Father. 
And Jesus, he was also, just like Peter told us to be, very conscious of the special connection that he had with every saint that had suffered before he came on the scene. He told a story about this. He talked about a man who owned a vineyard, leased it out, and went away to a distant country. He would send servants to those who had leased the vineyard to try to partake of some of the fruit of the vineyard. And when he sent the servants, Jesus said in his story that the servants were beaten. And then eventually those servants were killed. And then the master said to himself in Jesus's story, I'll send my son. Perhaps they'll honor him. And they, when the son arrived, the owners or the, those who had leased the vineyard said to themselves, this is the son. Perhaps if we kill him, we can gain the inheritance. And everyone there that day, including the religious leaders, understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. That God had sent wave after wave of prophet, wave after wave of messenger, people like Isaiah or Daniel or Jeremiah or Ezra or Nehemiah or Esther. He'd sent wave after wave of person who had been constantly rejected by God's people. Some of them suffered, some of them were killed, and now Jesus arrived in this long line of suffering servants, and he says, I'm gonna go all the way there. I'm going to the cross, I'm going to endure. But I think he was comforted by what he knew came before, and if I could say it like this, I think in his divinity, what would even come after? Connecting himself even to the suffering servants of the church, the church age that were yet future when Jesus was on the earth. So brothers and sisters, Jesus did all this. He's the one who's greater than this roaring lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so for us, we should cling to Christ for his help to do the very things that are in this passage. Because when the nature of Jesus is emanating through us, this is what will show up. We'll have a sober mind. We'll resist the devil. We'll understand that we should walk by faith and we'll realize our connection to suffering Christians throughout the world today, historically, and in the future. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to live this kind of life. Lord, we want and need your help and your grace and your ability and your strength. And Lord, right now, I just wanna pray specifically for those who are just really feeling the full weight of just the war, the battle that we're in right now and ask, Lord, that you'd give them reprieve, rest, solace, comfort, hope. And Lord, be with them. Let the spirit of Christ impart to them the ability that they need. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your honesty and clarity with us. Help us, Lord, to be and do these things in the times that we're in. In Jesus' name, we love you, Lord. Amen, amen. All right. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord together. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.